Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 18 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about the snuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode, we're very lucky to be joined by a guest who not only wields a fair bit of influence in the game, but is refreshingly outspoken about his views. PGA of America President Ted Bishop, he'll join us in a moment. But first, let me introduce my co-host for the day, a man who also wields plenty of influence in the game and is certainly outspoken about his views, golf blogger Jeff Shackleford. Jeff, I'm really looking forward to this chat today. Uh, me too, Rod. This should be interesting. Indeed. I had uh, had the opportunity to hear Ted on Matt Adams' show on SiriusXM earlier this week, and he was fantastic. So let's bring Ted into the discussion. Ted, really pleased that you could join us today. Thanks for taking some time. No, thanks. Appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk about this subject. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Ted, and this subject being, it's what we particularly wanted to chat about today, the proposed anchoring ban. It's probably no secret that uh, that your views and the views expressed here on State of the Game have been at the opposite ends of the spectrum over time. So can we just start? I want you to outline for us first, if you could, uh, how you came to this position where you, uh, where you oppose the anchoring ban. How did that come about? What is your position there and how did it come about? Well, I'm the president of the PGA of America, which is the largest working sports organization in the world today. And we're made up of 27,000 men and women golf professionals who are really charged with growing the game and developing players here in the United States. And, you know, we started uh, hearing and and discussing internally uh, this proposed change on anchoring uh, back last summer. And you know, we spent a lot of time in discussions with our national board of directors, and then ultimately when we knew it was inevitable that there was going to be some kind of a proposed rules change on this, in uh, late November of 2012, we surveyed our membership and had a a great response for us. We had over 4,200 of our members uh, respond to a poll question, and 63% at that point in time indicated that they were opposed to the proposed ban on anchored putting. And I think that the the major concerns that PGA of America professionals have stem from how this could possibly affect the enjoyment of the game by the recreational amateurs that we serve day in and day out. And I think that uh, there's a variety of, uh, of other political ramifications, in our opinions, if this ban uh, is is in fact imposed. Uh, you know, how are we going to deal with amateurs in this country that just blatantly refuse to follow the rules? Uh, does this lead to uh, bifurcation of the rules down the road? So, uh, you know, th- I would say those were the two primary issues. And um, during the 90-day comment period, our members uh, became very engaged in the subject, and uh, they're pretty passionate in their views. And as their president, it's my job to relay their views. Mm. And uh, a bunch of that stuff that you talked about will try and pick apart some of those threads because there's some pretty big issues isn't in there, isn't there, Ted? Because this has very quickly gone from a story about a particular putting stroke, i.e. the one with the long putter, where the putter is anchored to the body, to a far bigger discussion about who should make the rules of the game and for who. You mentioned the magic word there, bifurcation. Um, it really has grown much beyond the putting issue, hasn't it? Very quickly, this whole topic. Well, I, no, I think you're exactly right. And, and I, I don't think that... Uh, you know, really, in this country, and Jeff could speak to this as, as well, but I don't think the bifurcation of the rules was really much of a topic of discussion six months ago. But I think uh, once this proposed ban on anchoring came into play, and uh, there were a lot of opinions floating out there one way or the other about, well, is it is this a rule that should be implemented for the elite players? If so, uh, you know, no harm, no foul to the recreational amateur that uh, – 
you know, is trying to enhance their enjoyment. And, you know, the, the hard thing for me, you know, as a golf professional is when I have a 65-year-old member who comes into my office who's a nine handicapper who's been using a long putter and anchoring it for the past seven years because he simply couldn't get the ball in the hole from two to three feet. And, you know, he's very disconsolate about this situation. He's saying, you know, if this band goes through, I don't see how I can continue to, to play as much golf as I've played because I'm not going to enjoy it. And as a matter of fact, I may just quit playing and, and take up another sport altogether. And I think that the nature of the golf business in the United States has been so fickle over the past decade that many of us as operators just feel that we are at a point in time where we cannot afford to lose one player or one round of golf with anything that's legislated in the game right now. Shaq, I'm sure you've got a response to to some of the issues that Ted's raised there. Well, you know, the first I, when when Ted was talking, I was uh, and, and I've I've heard him talk about older golfers and how this would affect them. Uh, I'm wondering, Ted, as a as a golf professional, uh, and that is one of the things I think that's fun in this discussion is you actually are are seeing everyday golfers. You actually work behind the counter, and 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 uh, unlike a lot of these people in golf, are, are dealing with um, paying customers. And I, I'm wondering, would you, as an instructor, start a young golfer uh, anchoring? Would, would would that be the way you teach them to putt? No, it wouldn't. And, and uh, you know, I think that's a great question. And, you know, there's a statistic out there, Jeff, uh, from the uh, AJGA, uh, you know, the American Junior Golf Association, one of our largest junior golf bodies in the United States. And I think that uh, only 2% of, of those players that are participating on the AJGA tour are, in fact, anchoring. And, uh, no, it is not a way that I would start somebody out playing. Mm. Of course, the, one of the high-profile young people who's, who wheels the belly putter is, uh, is the young kid who'll be playing in the Masters in a couple of weeks, Ted. 14 years old, won the Asian Amateur with a belly putter. We saw him here in Australia. The rest of his game is probably not up to the standard required, I wouldn't think, to do well at Augusta, but never putted any other way. So Jeff makes a fair point in as much as it certainly is the case, and this seems to be the fear of the USGA and the RNA, that the short putter will disappear if they don't do something about anchoring uh, in the near future. That's certainly the position that Mike Clayton has put on this show many times. That it, it may not yet be the ec- epidemic, but there is no doubt that it's coming. Do you have any? Do, do you think there's any merit to that argument? No, I really don't. And I and I would use the recent Daryl survey, you know, as an example of this that was released by the PGA Tour. And through the first five tour events this year, you saw usage of the long anchored putter dropped by approximately 40%. And I know you can make the argument that, okay, well, this is this is a group of players that have decided that this this rule may potentially get changed and uh, they've got to find an alternative way to putt. And I, I, no, no question. You know, some, some in that 40%, you know, have, <clears throat> have certainly done that. But I think it gets back to this argument that you can't provide any statistical evidence that would indicate that anchoring a long putter is a better way to putt. And I, I would make the case that there were probably some players on the professional tours that saw three of their peers win major championships that thought, you know what, maybe this is a method of putting that I should try. They tried it. It didn't work to their satisfaction. And as a result of that, they went back to the short putter. Mm. Jeff, just speaking to that notion, and it's often brought up by those who oppose the anchoring ban, that there's no statistical data that the anchored putter 
is a better way to putt. You've written about this fairly extensively. What's your take on that that argument about the putter? Well, my my take is that I I believe the USGA and RNA probably could cite examples of players who have seen uh, improvement with their putting. You know, Brandel Shambly wheeled out a just a, an incredible stat about Adam Scott and the majors. Uh, and I, I believe they have that kind of information. The problem for them, though, is that they would be singling out players and and wheeling out data, that, that, and and that and and that kind of points out somebody's advantage gained, and then suddenly that makes them look bad. And so I think that's why they resisted that. I I, I was disappointed they didn't have a little bit more data about increased usage uh, in their events or in other events. Uh, I think that would have really helped their cause, um, but. I think as for naming individual players, that that would have really uh, sent us down a, a kind of a dangerous path. Well, we've already seen, haven't we? Keegan Bradley's been a victim at various Well, uh, yeah, says, that's what he says, yeah. It, you, it, there's no doubt that that sort of thing is uh, is a possibility. It's always been my sort of thought, Ted, that I don't think the RNA and the SGA want to push the notion that it's a better way to putt, therefore we should ban it. I think what they're trying to say is that, you know, Essentially, the look of the the long putter isn't good. Uh, they'd prefer it if most people didn't use it. But they've come from the position of let's look at it. Is it is it a proper golf stroke? And their response has been, uh, no. That's been my thought. I don't think they've ever put the position that they want to ban it because it's a better or easier way to putt. And I think they've been very careful about avoiding that. Do you think this ban will go ahead, Ted? I'd be very surprised if the USJRNA would change their minds. What's your take on that? You've been very public, very vocal in your opposition. Do you think you've got a chance of them changing their minds? Well, you know, that's that's a great question, and I think that, uh, that we're all kind of in that wait-and-see mode as to, uh, you know, as to what does happen. Um, you know, I, I would hope that uh, they would have gone through the comment period and uh, they would have listened to what, you know, people have to say. I think one of the, the really tricky issues here is you've got this uh, very wide uh, proverbial line in the sand that's been drawn, and it's called the Atlantic Ocean, and, you know, it would appear that... Uh, those of us on the western side of the Atlantic are opposed to the ban, and people on the eastern side uh, obviously are in favor of it. And uh, so I think that, you know, it would be just mere speculation on my part to, to answer that question, and I think when they come down with their decision, then uh, everybody that's got a stake in the game is going to react to it, you know, in, in one way or another. I think, and I've, I've said this publicly, uh, wrote a a story about it a couple of weeks ago. I think there's a, a solution to this, and I think that it's a it's a conceivable compromise where every stakeholder in the game would would come out with what they want, and that would be let's drop the the proposed rule 14-1b and let's make it a 12th condition of competition. And in doing that, it allows everybody in the world to play by one set of rules. If the Open Championship and the U.S. Open decide that they do not want players anchoring long putters, then that condition of competition could be invoked. It would allow the PGA of America to do what you know we felt like we needed to do in the PGA Championship and how we would handle our everyday players at our facilities, and it certainly would allow the PGA Tour to, to do whatever they want to do. And I think that that would be a very simple solution to this problem, and yeah, I'm sure you're going to have people that are going to say, well, that's a bad idea because you're going to have, uh, you know, some players who are 
anchoring long putters in, in two or three of the majors, and, and this isn't going to you know happen in, in the others, and there's not going to be any uniformity in the equipment that's being used. But but I would go back to prior to 1975 when they were using a different size golf ball in the Open Championship. Uh, this is not unprecedented. It's not groundbreaking. We've had this situation before, and I think it would work pretty nicely. Because mm. we did we we being golf did actually change the situation about the ball ted uh partly i suspect for that reason i think that does open a can of worms though shack what would be your take on that notion of uh to me the immediate problem i can see is that you would immediately have some players who would then say well i'm not going to play that major because i can't anchor and straight away you've got asterisks next to various majors because players you know player a won the the pga but only because he could anchor and he never played in the british open again because he couldn't anchor there and uh, I don't know, is there a danger of setting up a division there and, and that whole singling out of players that we were talking about before? Jeff, that's how it would seem to me. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't worry me that much. I think uh, most players would feel a certain uh, uh, pressure to play, whether they anchored or not. I mean, look at Ernie Els right now is testing a short putter, and he's going to anchor at the Masters. But um, he, he kind of can see the writing on the wall, and and uh, you know he's he's uh, he's sensible. He understands, and I don't I don't think that would be the problem. I I, I personally find Ted's solution very interesting. The only thing that concerns me, and and kind of has shocked me about the whole anchoring uh, discussion, has been I, I I get Ted's position and the PGA's position about the everyday game. And I, I, I agree with it. I agree that uh, you know the, the the state of golf right now. We really don't want to be running people off. And if there's an old guy that's it's helped uh, make golf fun for him again, um, what's the harm in letting him do it? The, the the problem is that in this debate, it's the PGA Tour really that has come forward and, and wanted to protect anchoring for their players. And you know here you have the governing bodies saying, well, we feel. This is an element of skill that's important to delineate, and so I've been kind of shocked that the the tour has uh, really taken the position of, of on the opposite side of protecting skill, and so that that concerns me on a number of levels. If we ever got to a discussion about uh, distance, and you know, would they be uh, uh, not supporting that as well, even if a case were made that? We could be emphasizing skill with a different kind of um, uh, golf ball or, or some sort of a rollback. And so that's kind of what has thrown me for a loop. And, and um, so I, I would hate to see the PGA Championship uh, not ha- you know, be playing by the same rules as the other majors. Although I was shocked to learn from Ted's column that um, the PGA doesn't play the one ball uh, rule at the PGA Championship, which... Um, I'd be curious to hear from Ted how why that is and how that came about because it might kind of speak to uh, to this discussion on anchoring. And do most of the players realize that, Ted? Because I'm in I Jeff's probably boat. not. I didn't realize that, so I wonder whether <laughs> any of the players realize that, Ted. Well, you, and, and no, it's a very interesting uh, question. And I, you know, I was as the sitting president of the PGA of America. I'm on the PGA Tour Policy Board, and <clears throat> we had a meeting last week. And you know, I, I brought this up at the meeting, and. Uh, Jim Furyk sits on that PGA Tour policy board, and that was the first that, that he had heard that. He he was not aware of that. And I'm going to answer the question, then I'm going to point out three other conditions of competition that are played differently among the four majors. But to your question, Jeff, I asked Kerry Hegg, our uh, director of championships, that same question. And, and you know his response was that the PGA of America has taken the position that we don't feel that there's 
any difference from a technological standpoint uh, in the golf balls. We don't feel that one golf ball is 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 more superior to another, or that they perform differently in in any way. And uh, and we just don't see it being an issue. Uh, hmm. So that that would answer, you know, that question. But but as far as the uh, there are three other conditions of competition that are played differently. And uh, another one is practice putting on the last hole played. Uh, the U.S. Open, believe it or not, and this was another one that it was interesting uh, to me that the players that were on the PGA Tour policy board did not uh, were not aware of. The, but the U.S. Open allows practice putting on the, uh, the green or the hole last played, whereas the Masters, the Open Championship, and the PGA Championship uh, do not allow uh, that kind of practice. Uh, the embedded ball rule through the green is in effect for the U.S. Open, the PGA Championship, and the Masters, but it is not in effect at the Open Championship. And uh, finally, stones and bunkers, the Open Championship allows players to move stones and bunkers, whereas the other three majors do not allow players to move stones and bunkers. Mm. Of course, if you um, get fought, Ted, sorry, go ahead, Jeff. Well, uh, so I, so let's say Ted, your your concept was adopted. Let's say the USGA and RNA heard uh, from from a lot of people and and felt this was a, a compromise uh, that they could live with. Who at the PGA of America, or how would the PGA of America decide uh, those conditions of competition for the PGA Championship? You know, I think what we would probably do systematically, Kerry Hag would come to our PGA Board of Directors and uh, Kerry would probably make a recommendation on how we would handle this at the PGA Championship level, at the Senior PGA Championship, and then our Board of Directors. Uh, I would think the magnitude of this this particular situation would be the ones that would act on it. Mm. And one other thing, the the um, in in you've been involved in a lot of these discussions, and obviously you can't disclose things that are talked about. But I'm uh, I'm curious if the question, and and I guess it might fall in the condition of competition area, but if the the question of a local rule uh, element to this has has been raised, and whether uh, courses, I mean, the courses can adopt local rules for all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And if, the, if it's a, uh, you know, let's say it's the villages down in Florida and everybody's uh, older and likes to, to anchor uh, the putter and they decide they would like to have a local rule uh, that allows for anchoring. Well, why was that not part of this, uh, of this discussion by yeah. the governing bodies? Uh, you know, that's a great question. And I think even myself included and a lot of other teaching professionals were asking that same question at the beginning of the comment period. And, as I talked with uh, Glenn Neger, um, the president of USGA, about that same concept, the, the explanation that was given to me by the USGA was that a local rule, and this is important to understand the difference between a local rule and a condition of competition. A local rule, Jeff, would deal specifically with um, abnormal conditions that uh, surround the golf course proper. Okay. Okay. Um, and then the condition of competition would be a sidelight that would deal with all those things that are not related to the physical aspect of the golf course. But to your point, and I think that's a primary concern that that we as PGA professionals have. Those of us that believe that 
you know, one set of rules probably is the best direction, you know, for the game long term. But we have, I think, this fear of the political pressure that our golf professionals might be put into at the club level, depending upon who anchors at their club and who doesn't, mm. as it relates to creating what would be a local condition of competition. And a local condition of competition does not exist in the rules of golf. So that would be bifurcation of the rules in its purest sense. And uh, when you bifurcate the rules like that, uh, and those are not recognized rules, then any scores that are posted for handicapping purposes you know, are really not legitimate scores. Any handicaps that would be at that golf club, for example, would, would not be recognized anywhere else outside the framework of that club. And, and I think that that is, you know, when you get back to that Golf Digest survey that was done back in, in December where 41% of the amateur players who anchored, who were polled in this, this survey indicated they would continue to anchor even if this rule was imposed. I, I think you can see the consternation that would exist out there among golf professionals. Sure. You can you can hear the can of worms opening, can't you? Uh, as you're speaking there, Ted, I was thinking of some of the, the potential scenarios. So I guess this really brings us to what I think is the more interesting part of the discussion and, and is the bigger issue for golf going forward. Anchoring the putter or not really is neither here nor there in many ways. It's about the rules of the game, isn't it, Ted? And and I think I agree with Jeff. I, I can see and, and empathise and sympathise with the position of those at the coalface of the game about not turning away any single person who plays the game already. I mean, golf is in a state of triage, really, isn't it? I mean, we all talk about grow the game, but really, if we could just stabilise the game, that would be a good start. So losing players for any reason doesn't seem to make any sense. But but you do open a can of worms, do you not, when you, when you talk about the notion of separate rules. You wrote quite clearly in your column, I think it was last week, that the PGA would consider a separate set of rules of their own and somebody brought up the notion of having your own handicapping system and you said that that would be sort of taken into consideration are you serious about that or is there a bit of politicking there ted because that's a big call isn't it to say look we'd be prepared to make our own rules uh for people to play by no i I was i was very serious about it and i think that uh you know the the pga of america would be put in a position where i I mean let's face it if there's going to be two sets of rules you know based on the conclusion of the outcome of this thing the second set of rules is probably going to come from the PGA Tour. So I think then the PGA of America sits in a position as to, okay, do we, which set of rules do we follow? And uh, you know, I think that's the million-dollar question. And, and all, all I can tell you is that, you know, we had uh, our conference of leaders, which was, uh, you know, a gathering of over 200 PGA professionals a couple of weeks ago in Florida. And, uh, you know, we asked them this question. And, uh, you know, there were no more than – 10 or 12 hands that went up in the room that said that they would uh, continue to support USGA rules if the anchoring ban was imposed. And there were over 200 hands that went up and, and said they would consider, uh, you know, going down a, di- a different uh, direction with the set of rules. So, uh, no, it wasn't, it, it wasn't lip service on our part in, in any way, shape, or form. Um, it's just, uh, again, stating what the, uh, the feelings of our membership was. Yeah. If that was to, to end up being the case, Ted, uh, that sort of division doesn't seem healthy for the game, does it? I'm sure that's not the PGA's preferred stance, is it? No, I, I, there's no question about it. I mean, and I think that's the that is no question. That's the toughest part of of this whole 
situation. I mean, I think we all have the, the best interests of the game at heart. Uh, we just have different perspectives on this issue. And I, I will tell you this, that's the one thing that I have been, uh, I've been impressed with the PGA tour and, and I've been privy to some, some, uh, high level conversations, obviously serving on the PGA tour policy board. And I can, can tell both of you guys that every time this topic has been discussed at the PGA tour level, there has been just as much conversation about how it affects the game as a whole and how it affects the recreational amateur as how it affects the players that are playing at the highest level. Hmm. And, uh, and I think that that's the one point that the USGA and the RNA underestimated or really didn't research, in my opinion, very deeply before they threw this idea out. Uh, oh, sorry, Ted, can, can I throw in something? Uh, yeah, Ted, one thing that I, I hear from a lot of people – uh, and you, you, this is a chance for you to, uh, and you already have, in a sense, clarified uh, the political issue that your your pros face. But uh, a lot of people say, "Oh, well, the PGA of America guys, they just want to sell more putters. They just want to sell more stuff." And I've I've actually said, "Well, no, I, I haven't really gotten the sense that that was um, uh, part of the argument." I'd be curious if you could you could uh, suggest that that is probably not the case and also just maybe speak to the reaction you've gotten by by taking on usga and rna in this well i would say i would i would totally agree with the the first part of the question the monetary aspect of selling long putters is uh it's not even part of the discussion um that's uh that's such a a minute portion of, of any of our businesses that's not where we're coming from you know whatsoever and uh, I will tell you that the uh, I, I think the the reception that our opinion and viewpoint has gotten over the past months has been really gratifying uh, to me personally representing uh, the PGA of America because I do think that people genuinely can tell that the PGA of America is uh, we're trying to take uh, the position and we are the voice almost of the of the common man in, in this argument and I think that. The, the tough thing for the recreational amateur is they've had to rely on the PGA of America to be their spokesperson on this. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, we've pro- we've followed all the procedure. You know, we've gone through all the proper protocol. We've, you know, given the USGA all the responses in, in, in writing that they asked for on a, on a timely basis. And, uh, you know, that being said, Jeff, uh, you know, one of the first things that I did as president in December was I charged Ed Ibarguin, who's the chairman of our instructional committee, to come up with a an alternative way to putt, a, a conversion method, so to speak, for those people who were currently anchoring long putters. So if, in fact, this band does go into play, then, you know, we as PGA of America professionals can at least look like we're we're problem solvers. We're we're you know we're not a bunch of rebels that are going to say, you know, stick to your guns. You got to do this, and we're going to try to help people out with the the proper way to go. But um, I feel good about the the stance that we've taken, and I've I've had very few uh, criticisms or critical remarks from from really anybody on our position. Well, did Did you have a frank and open exchange with Arnold Palmer last week, Ted? I think you were meeting with Arnold, weren't you, at Bay Hill? <laughs> it was a it was yeah, a actually. <laughs> that was yesterday, uh-huh. and uh, robust you know, discussion did. was it? <laughs> yeah, we know we did have we had a good discussion, and, and you know my the primary purpose of the of the meeting, and I you know I asked if he would you know would entertain us as an audience was not to go down there and 
and change his mind on, on his stance on anchoring because he supports the USGA. But I just wanted him to hear the PGA of America's perspective. I wanted him to, to hear our viewpoint. I wanted him to know the due diligence that I felt like that we had done as an association throughout this whole process. Um, and I was, you know, he listened to what we, you know, had to say. And, and uh, you know, I can tell you that, that I think his his biggest concern in this whole argument is uh, is the possibility of having two different sets of rules, and uh, and I find that curious. And I, I mentioned this to him yesterday when you go back to two thousand and one, oh, you didn't bring and you see up. where his you know where his oh. stance was on a non-conforming driver that that Callaway had, and mm-hmm. you know he was an advocate of of not using this driver. at at the elite level of play, but he thought it was fine for amateurs to take the driver out and have some fun with it. And uh, that's just kind of interesting that <laughs> that he would take the stance that he has on, on anchoring, given where he was at with that uh, non-conforming driver. What, what did he say? You're a braver man than me, Ted Bishop. <laughs> I've got to say, I wouldn't be bringing that up with Arnold Palmer. What did he say to you? Well, you know, he just kind of uh, shrugged his shoulders and smiled, and he said, that's how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> I'm taken aback that you were because that that was a that was a huge issue at the time. And as we discussed once before on the show, it cost Peter Kessler his job at the Golf Channel, which uh, which was not a great outcome, I don't think, for anybody. Ted, just to clarify something quickly, and then I want to talk about bifurcation more generally rather than just the putters. If if in the end of the wash up, we bifurcated the rules and said that. Amateurs could use long putters, anchored, whatever they want, but professional elite golf couldn't. Would you be happy with that? The fact that the tour is against the non-anchoring is interesting. Would you be happy to go against them in that, in a sense, in that you'd be happy if there were no long putters at any of the majors or on any of the professional tours? Well, you know, I think that uh, I would not be happy with that. And again, I get back to the definition of a stroke. I mean, a stroke is the forward movement of the club with the intention of striking at and moving the ball. And, uh, you know, that's that's one of the primary arguments that those that are in favor of the ban have used. They've said this is not a stroke. And, you know, when I read the definition of a stroke in the rule book, I, I, I can't see that, you know, myself. And I think at the end of the day, okay, it's going to be the responsibility of, of all the parties in golf to figure out, how we're going to make this thing, you know, work as we as we best, you know, possibly can. But that being said, you know, I, I mean, I will say, if the PGA Tour, you know, comes out and uh, and says they're going to go down a different path with the rules of golf, then I think that the PGA of America will 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 have some tough decisions in front of us as it relates to to where we're going to go with that because uh, you know we we have to look out you know, for our best interest as much as we possibly can, and that's the enjoyment of the game by the recreational amateur. Well, part of the enjoyment is, Ted, that I could get on a plane here in Sydney today and fly over there and have a game of golf with you, and we'd be playing by... We would both recognise and be playing by the same rules. It would be tragedy if in 10 years that wasn't the case, wouldn't it? I agree with that. And, uh, you know, in all ways, I get the sense, Ted, that if this isn't handled carefully... um, there's almost a game of brinkmanship here. There is a real potential for an extraordinary schism in the game if this isn't sorted. You you represent the PGA of America, an undoubtedly influential organisation. The PGA Tour in America has come out against the proposed 
anchoring ban, one doesn't have to think too hard to see that were we to sort of have this split on this particular rule, that then all rules would be up for grabs and we'd have a totally different ball game, which couldn't be good for golf. How do you see it playing out, Ted? Because it really, we really are talking about the future of the game internationally here, aren't we? And as you say, there is a divide between America and the rest of the world on this, it would appear, as well. Well, I think, you know, the, the consternation that exists from the PGA of America and the PGA Tour in large part has been about the process. And, uh, and I think that we're also concerned, you know, where this may lead to or what's going to be next. And I think that uh, neither the PGA Tour nor the PGA of America is in favor of any kind of a rollback on the golf ball. And, uh, you know, in some ways why we is, feel sorry, that... What, why is that, Ted? Sorry, could you just clarify, why are you not in favour of Robert? It was, certainly it must be of some help to your members. If golf was cheaper, courses were not as long, it took less time to play, and all the things that would come with a ball that goes shorter, surely that would be a good thing for your members. I, you know, I, I can't see that. I, I can't see how, you know, anybody hitting a ball 20%... Uh, less as far as they hit it now is a good thing. I mean, you're going to have to adjust tee boxes, you know, to to make the golf courses play the way that they're supposed to play. I mean, you know, I heard somebody uh, talking about the analogy of playing a 375-yard par four over the weekend on this topic, and and they were talking about a 20% distance reduction, and instead of hitting seven iron into a green, if they're playing the same set of tees, they're going to be hitting a four iron or a hybrid into the green. And there's no way that it's going to speed the game up, that it's going to make the game easier. My golf course has already been built. Um, you know, there's, it's not going to affect my maintenance costs in any way, shape, or form. My bunkers have been positioned based on tee boxes and, and distances that it's going to take to carry these these bunkers or play short of them or whatever the case may be. I mean, there's all kinds of ramifications that, that go into this. And, and i got to be honest with you, I mean, I, I think you want to see a revolution among the amateur players. Tell them that you're going to give them a golf ball that's going to go 20% uh, less far. That it's might, just, uh, it, it makes no sense. That might have some merit, Ted. What if the ball keeps going further? What happens to your already built golf course then? And this is what we've well, seen happen to the game, isn't it, over the last 15 or 20 years. Golf courses have responded to a golf ball that's going longer and longer and longer. If that trend continues, does the game not get more expensive and more time-consuming to play? Forget about a rollback. What happens if we keep a, getting longer? That's a great point. Uh, but one of the other bodies that I have the privilege to be a part of is I'm also on the USGA Equipment Standards Board. And you know we saw considerable data at the meeting that I attended in late January, and you're, you're not seeing distance at the uh, at the at the top level uh, of of tour players increasing. You know where you're seeing distance increase would be, uh, you know, in that bottom tier of players, and 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 I would say that the distance gap is becoming shorter. Um, <laughs> literally speaking, it's becoming uh, it, you know less and less between. Say that you know the guys at the top of the list and the guys are in that uh, ninety to to one hundredth you know ranking, but you're not seeing players hit the ball any further today, you know really than they were two or three years ago. I think that the the golf ball is 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 in a good spot right now, and I think the PGA Tour you know feels very strongly that they're not having any problem with course setups, they're not having uh, any issues with the way their product is displayed. You know, because of of how far people are are hitting the golf ball, so 
I, oh. I just can't see it. Mm, that would that would that would probably speak to why I never see PGA Tour uh, executives out on the course watching their product. Because <laughs> if they did, they would see these backups on tees, backups on par fives. This slow play that is caused by two things: speed of greens, and guys now all being able to reach every par five and having drivable fours. And so, and this is one of my beefs with the tour: is that they need to get out and see this. They need to listen to their rule staff. And they would learn these things. But, Ted, I, I have to ask on the distance topic, in your time in the game, do you feel, have you seen a proportionate uh, uh, increase in distance for, for, the, for the guy with a cert, with a, with a, that's a 15 handicap with a certain ball speed that is, is in proportion with what we see today's tour players getting or have gotten in the last, say, 10, 15 years? Do you see that there's been a correlation between those two that – Everybody's gotten the same benefits from the equipment. You know, I think that the amateur player has benefited, and they do hit the ball further than they <clears throat> they once did. I mean, I'd use myself as an example. I mean, I'm I'm 59 years old, and I probably I drive the ball as far now as I I ever have. I think, in in my opinion, Jeff, you can attribute that more to the technology of the drivers than you can the golf ball. And I think that you know uh, lighter shafts, bigger heads help people increase club head speed, and I think that directly related to the increased distance that you saw, more so than the golf ball. And I think that I, I kind of know where you're going with this, and, and, and I think that a rollback on the golf ball would affect the recreational amateur far more than it would affect the the uh, elite player at the at the highest level. So again, I suppose, Ted, we come to bifurcation, don't we? Do you think that there is some sense in the notion of at least considering a shorter golf ball at the tour level. You know, I don't. Uh, I, I don't necessarily agree with uh, with with Jeff's analogy. And I, I know when we set the PGA Championship up, uh, you know, we're we're going to golf courses where you know we have the ability to play the the championship at seventy seven hundred yards, and and uh, you know we've been able to offset some of those things based on on course setups now and i at the same time i know there are golf courses out there that some would consider to be obsolete based on uh, on how long they can they can play them but i just think the game is in is in a great spot right now i think that you know the pga tour just came off the most successful year financially that it has ever had and uh I, it's just hard for for me to envision why we'd want to change anything right now. Oh, now we're 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 the on the anchoring. We're saying that that we we've got to protect every golfer we can because we're losing golfers. And my problem has always been, well, if 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 distance has been so good for the game, then why are we losing golfers? Why why uh, it's just not making sense that we're 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 scaring people off for some reason. Or we're not attracting enough people, and and that's all happened at a time when we've seen amazing innovation in equipment and and balls and even shoes. I mean, these new Adidas shoes are unbelievable. How light they are! All these wonderful innovations, shafts, driver heads, and uh, the sport is uh, in trouble. And I so I'm having a hard time understanding which what what is going to grow the game. And I, I don't believe it's distance or anchoring, but Ted, you're out there every day. You you know what I mean. You guys have ideas about what's going to excite people, and and yeah, you know, I I'd love to know what they are. 
Well, I just think that uh, this is a hard game to play, Jeff. And I think that anything that uh, you know that we can do to to make it more enjoyable, and you know, the, for the game to be more enjoyable, doesn't necessarily mean that people have to shoot lower scores. Um, but I just think that uh, <laughs> I just. <laughs> I don't even really know how to answer that question because well, I it wasn't I think much that, of a question. It was more of a rant than your defense. So. <laughs> Fairness, yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah, there really was no question there. It was just sort of empty. Well, what, what's, okay, what's your take, Ted? You just said you're 59 years old, and each year you go and help set up a golf course for the PGA Championship at about 7,700 yards. 30 years ago, as a 29 year old, could you have conceived of being asked to play a golf course or go and spectate golf at a, at a golf course that was 7,700 yards long? No, no, I can't. So it, it's it's been an extraordinary change in the game, particularly at the tournament level, hasn't it? I mean, we had the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne here a couple of years ago, and we're about to have the US Open at Merion. And there's no question that the tour players of today make those sorts of golf courses maybe not quite obsolete, but not far off. What we're going to see with Merion's course setup is not necessarily going to be a great ad for the game, Ted. I don't feel. What's your feeling about that? When you have to have 20-yard wide fairways and rough that's six or seven inches thick to try and control the scoring in some way or to present a challenge to the players. Do you think that's a good ad for the game? Does it make it look like fun to the public? This is partly, I guess, about the relationship between tournament golf and the general public and its place in the game. You know, I think Jeff could maybe speak to this better than I can because he's probably more familiar with what the course setup is going to be at uh, at Marion and, and, and how long that golf course you know, is going to play this summer. But I think that uh, that's going to be an interesting U.S. Open to watch for all the reasons that you just mentioned. And, and uh, you know, I've been to Marion. Uh, you know, I've I've played it. And uh, I'd be curious to see what you think, Jeff. I mean, I think there's an opportunity there to, uh, to kind of see how one of the classic golf courses uh, that's set up a certain way uh, can hold up to, to all these things we're concerned about. Well, I, from what I've seen, just in photographs, it's it looks rather uh, restricted and and narrow and a little bit goofy. So I, I uh, to be honest, I just don't know what to expect. It could be anything, and if we get any rain, it uh, that'll kind of uh, mute uh, some of the design features there that are of interest. So it's it's really going to be a, an interesting open, that's for sure. I I I, I know we're all going to be watching it. Um, well, let me try. Let me try to ask a better question of Ted. I, I've <laughs> thought least, about this. at least a question, Jeff. Yes, a question. Is, that would be better, uh, Ted. When you're in the shop and and you've got the Golf Channel on and you've got people coming and going, what is your sense on the importance in golf of of one set of rules and therefore, especially in the context of equipment? W- Golfers getting to buy the same thing that they see the people on television playing. How, how important is that to keeping people in the game? You know, I don't know that uh, it's that important. And I think that uh, because of the magnitude of how much golf people can watch, and I think the uh, understanding that uh, the average players have about how good athletes the uh, the tour players are today, you know, how much farther that those guys are hitting it than you know, than they are. Um, I don't really think it's that big of a, of an issue. And, and I think that, you know, people want to watch exciting golf. Uh, they love watching, uh, you know, the Bubba Watsons of the world, you know, hit it as far as they hit it. 
they love you know watching people make eagles on on par fives. It's the excitement that uh, I think generates interest in the game. And I, I don't really think that. I, I think that's a great question because I think it's a bigger issue to the people that govern the game than it probably is to the people that play the game. Mm. Certainly, the uh, so there's some some multinational companies that think there's a huge correlation there because they spend extraordinary amounts of money to sponsor players and make television ads with them, and they obviously see some correlation between that and uh, and what's selling. Ted, what is to you? But 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 but, but there is one point I want to emphasize, and, 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 and again, if we're gonna you know if we're gonna correlate this back to to anchoring, we're not talking about non-conforming equipment here. No. I mean, everybody's right. still no, going to no, no. be using the same type of equipment. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. Uh, now, it is amazing how many people you sense don't understand uh, the rule change. A lot of people think long putters are, are being banned in this, and that's, that's, uh, that's uh, kind of a surprising uh, mistake that I, I, I notice, uh, even with some tour players uh, not quite understanding. Ted, what's, right. sorry, Ted, I'd be curious to ask you what's your take, and you've been around the game for a long time. Is What is it that does appeal to people about the game? As Jeff said there, you work in the shop and you speak to golfers. They come in for their daily or weekly or monthly round or whatever it is. Why are people playing golf, and do you think the reasons people play golf today have changed from what they were when you started playing, I'm going to guess, maybe 40 or 50 years ago? Well, I certainly see it with the generation that's, uh, that's below me. Uh, you know, I would see it with... Uh you know, my my daughter's 35 years old, married, has two kids, and she and her husband are both good players. They're what I would consider to be avid golfers, but based on their lifestyle, uh, they just don't have the time to play that uh, people of my generation did, you know, when I was that age. Uh, there's so many more youth activities, uh, social media and technology, uh, <laughs> you know, the Internet. There are so many distractions today that uh, that influence what uh, what people can do with their recreational time. It's just it's unbelievable, and that's that's part of what the PGA of America has really tried to take a deep dive into with with our Golf 2.0 initiative that we rolled out a, a couple of years ago. And we spent a lot of money doing a consumer-based survey and and talked to people that were playing, talked to people that had quit playing, talked to people that had never started playing, and and asked them you know, those same questions. And, you know, time and money and difficulty of the game are the three factors that influence how much people are actually going to go out and play. And and, uh, and so those are things that, you know, we've tried to take some out-of-the-box approaches in those areas and, and do some things that, uh, you know, would uh, would get more people out. But it's uh, it's tough. I mean, there, we're just, there's a lot of competition for uh, – for that market right now. So what in that case, and, and in fairness, and I've got to point out that the USGA and the RNA, none of the amateur bodies have as part of their charter to grow the game because there's really nothing in it for them whether the game grows or not at its essence. I'm sure they all want golf to be popular and strong and all the rest of it, uh, but it's not in their charter. It is kind of in your charter, isn't it, because it is your business. The more people who play, the better the business is and the better that is for your members. So what do what sorts of things are you thinking about moving forward, much as I hate the term, Ted? I mean, the appeal of the game to me, and I'm sure to a lot of other people, was in fact the difficulty of it, the challenge of it. It seems to me that we've tried to market and, 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 and go in a direction that says, let's make the game easier and less challenging. I'm not sure that that necessarily is what will attract people to the game. What attracted you to the game? And can that still attract people to the game? And, and should we be marketing that? What do we do? You know, I, I think there's a difference between 
the type of player that is attracted to the difficulty of the game and the player who's driven away from the game because of the difficulty. And I, and I, I agree with you. I think when people become golfers, the difficulty of the game is enticing to them. But I think there are far more people that never get to that point because they can't get past, you know, how, how hard and difficult the game may be. And, uh, you know, so I know, you know, for example, in some of our basic instruction programs in this country, uh, you know, we have tried to spend more time showing the beginning player how to have fun at the golf course, the things they can do to enhance their enjoyment of the game as they learn to play the game. For example, maybe teeing the ball up on every shot that they hit until they get up to the green, you know, where they can practice their putting and chipping skills, not hitting bunker shots, not worrying about their score, going and playing a shorter set of tees that will put them in a position where maybe they're playing a par four from – 125 or 150 yards, and then as they become more skilled, more comfortable, more adept to their surround, they move back to a different set of and they start approaching the game more as the conventional golfer for many, many years did. And I think that, you know, we, we've had some success with this approach, and uh, it's been, like I say, out of the box, it's been uh, groundbreaking in a lot of ways, getting our own PGA members to buy into maybe this is the way that we need to approach beginning golfers today, not the way that we taught for, for so many years. Mm. This is going to make me sound like a pariah to most of your members, I'm sure, Ted, but is it possible that the reality is that the game is not in a position to and doesn't in fact need to grow? I wonder whether we should be focusing our efforts on stabilising the game. We're actually losing golfers, um, generally speaking, year on year. Should we not be doing something to try and shore that up before we think about growing the game? It seems to me that golf in some ways got far too big facility-wise because of a real estate boom that had nothing to do with the game, and now the game's trying to catch up the demand to fit that supply. Is there any merit to that argument? Well, I think there's a lot of merit to it, and, and you know, I don't know what the situation is in Australia, but I can tell you here in the United States, I mean, we just had far too many golf courses built in the late 1990s and, uh, you know, the growth of players did not uh, equal the number of facilities that we had built. So there are just very few, uh, if any, facilities that are playing the same number of, of total rounds of golf today that they were, you know, back in the, in the 80s and 90s. And as a result of that, um, golf courses are in the United States are like hotels. <laughs> got all these vacant rooms that are uh, in the form of tea times that we're trying to fill up. So, you know, in this country, I think that's why we're still committed to trying to grow the game because uh, we've certainly got a lot of access that we can fill. Mm, And it's in answer to your question, it's very similar here in Australia. I don't think it's quite as dire. I think we've probably had a stronger club membership-based culture, uh, avid golfer culture for the bulk of players here, but we've certainly seen that, you know, golf courses springing up all over the place, uh, very fancy resort-style courses built with real estate money putting local golf courses under real pressure because they don't look so good, they don't match up, and now, of course, it's so cheap to play the fancy new golf course, why would anybody play the local club that's been there forever and is a is an old-fashioned, you know, golf course that, that can't keep up with the uh, the glitz and the glamour? Ted, I've probably taken far too much of your time. There's a thousand more things that I'd like to ask you about, but it has been fabulous to get your insights on some of these things, and it's nice to hear an opposing voice on State of the Game occasionally. We spend far too much time agreeing with each other, so it's been nice to have an opposing view. I appreciate you taking the time to chat. No, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. And hopefully you'll come back one day. 
I'd love to. Oh, good. I, I had a fear that you might feel like a lion in a den of Christians, so I'm glad that, <laughs> I'm glad that you're prepared to come through the gate again. Ted, thanks for uh, for taking some time. And Jeff Shagavata, thank you to you yep. as well, mate. Always great to chat with All you. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ted. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for State of the Game. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed it. Looking forward to catching up with you again next time on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.